Welcome to the Rugby Analyst Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Muddy. This week, we speak with George Murray of Munster Rugby. George, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Christopher, and uh, very happy to contribute to your show. Yeah, we're happy to have you. So uh, just to get started, where are you from and where's home now? Well, home now is in uh, is in Limerick, uh, literally two or three minutes from uh, the University of Limerick and the High Performance Centre for Munster Rugby. Um, I've been based here for going on uh, 18 years now. So um, I was originally, uh, I'm originally from Bray in County Wicklow, which is just a couple of kilometers south of uh, Dublin. Um, and, and started my career out uh, working with Leinster Rugby. So uh, took the dramatic move then to Munster when I was just uh, only a young fella and uh, I've been here since. <laughs> cool. So you started with Leinster and then went immediately to Munster or are there any other steps in between? Yeah, no, no, I went immediately to uh, Munster. I, I, you know, I, I, I was involved with uh, Leinster um, coaching education department along with one of your other guests that you had on, uh, Brett Igo. Um, you know, myself and myself worked together in the coach education department up there and, uh, you know, kind of at the birth or the infancy of performance analysis and video analysis. Um, as he described in one of your podcasts, using VHS machines was exactly the same thing. Um, and really, you know, I spent a bit of time in Australia as a student and a person just out of college playing rugby and, you know, done a bit of coaching over there and done a lot of, done a lot of coaching when I was in, co- in school, you know, from, you know, 18, 19 years of age, that, that age up. Um, so coaching and uh, was kind of my first birth into the game uh, outside of playing and then kind of analysis just took over from there. Um, and, you know, working with Brett and working with Leinster at the time, there wasn't many people in the industry. Um, so we learned our way the hard way, but uh, in, in a fun way. And um, obviously then opportunities came up. Monster, Monster didn't have a performance analysis, analysis uh, or a video analyst at the time. So um, Alan Gaffney, who, who Brett also spoke highly of, uh, took over the head coaching role uh, down at Monster. And he, uh, you know, he asked me to come down after quite a turn of events where you know, I was due to travel to, to Australia to go to college. Um, to play and to do a bit of work and then um, you know the day before I was meant to go to Australia I was on a train down to Cork getting an interview with the with the late Gareth Fitzgerald and uh, a week later I started working as a performance analyst with Munster. Wow so uh, what's it like working for the same team for 20 years? Yeah it's incredible you know um, I suppose you look at all many many jobs in life and you look at certain people. I talk to friends who, you know, get tired of the same job or are, are demotivated in certain things they do. I think rugby and being a performance analyst is very, very different. Um, you know, I'm highly motivated for my job for, for the reason being that we're in the industry of winning and performing and seeing um, seeing players perform and grow as, as, as not just persons but uh, you know as, as players as well. So I think every day brings the challenges with that, and every day brings the excitement with it. So. Um, yeah, it, it, it may be a long time. I'm with one club. Um, you know, there's obviously uh, I love working for Monster. I love the values it has. I love I love the people. I love the organisation. But um, you know, fundamentally, fundamentally, I'm motivated to do the job, and, and that's that's about providing a platform um, and a process and a, and a department that helps the team win. Cool. Um, so being there for that amount of time, you've seen a number of head coaches, I'm sure. So what's it like? How's it been like with all the transitions and kind of bringing on a new coach and kind of 
adapting what they do, kind of keeping it consistent with what Munster does? Like, how does how do the transitions typically work out? Yeah, sure. I suppose one of the key words you, you, you said in your intro there was, was adapting and uh, in your question. And ad- adapting is key as a performance analyst. Um, you know, we all have views on the game, but I think our role, not that I think, I know our role is to provide the coaches and the players with, with, with a... Um, you know, with a, with a process and, uh, you know, a platform for them to do their job. So uh, we must adapt to those coaches. Um, we must align our thoughts and our, our thinkings and how we how we think about the game, how they philosophically see the game. That helps us do our job, um, you know, align to how they perceive the team playing. Um, I think, you know, I've seen other people have pitfalls where they, where they completely disagree with a certain coaching style or process. And, um, you know, then you're not supporting the team. You know, people on a, on a far bigger prey grade will decide what who coaches the team and how it's coached. But I think our job as a performance analyst is to, is to work with that and learn. Particularly, you know, one of the good things about working with, uh, I think it's maybe seven or eight different head coaches that I've worked with, is they all have very, very different views of the game and very, very different ways of coaching. Uh, not just the head coaches, but the, the assistant coaches or the, you know, the positional coaches that I've worked with them and um, that gives you the scope to, to, to see different things and see how the game changes so you know adapting to how they work uh, and how they see the game allows you to develop as a, as a person and it allows you to develop as a performance analyst as well yeah straight right on um all right so you while with Munster you guys have won the Heineken Cup what was that experience like yeah, we've won. We've won a couple of Heineken Cups. Um, you know, we've won. We've won a few uh, Pro 14 titles. So, um, you know, we, we've had our share fair, uh, fair share of success, albeit not so much in the last uh, in the last few years. But uh, you know, I, I think um, I watched the program the other day, a re- a re- a kind of a reliving or a re-showing of uh, behind the scenes um, of our 2006 win against Biarritz, uh, which was our first European Cup, and. You know, I'd spent a few years at the team up to that point, and, and those guys were on a journey of, uh, you know, since 1995 to win a European Cup. So, you know, from an 11-year journey to get to, a, you know, the pinnacle of winning the competition took a lot of sacrifice, a lot of pain of losing semi-finals, losing finals. Uh, you know, it, it kind of made the team and grew them stronger, although, you know, we really wanted to win as many trophies as you could in a period of time. I mean, there's a natural... Uh, cycle to to certain squads, you know we won one again two years later. We were on look. We, we didn't perform the year after in two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight. We won it again, and we've had a lot of near misses. You know a lot of semi final losses. You know um, you know where some somewhere we didn't perform really well at all to be honest with you, and somewhere we performed and, and, and didn't get what we wanted. So um, I suppose to answer your question, yeah, winning a Heineken Cup was you know winning two and it was an amazing feeling. Uh, something you'll cherish and never forget, but I suppose um, to be ruthless in the job and ruthless in what you do, you have to have an appetite to win win more and more. And I think that's where we are as a team with Munster at the moment. We, you know, we have a squad hungry for success. You could almost say desperate for success, but I think desperate is a, is a word that holds you back. So I think hungry and the appetite to win and keep winning is, is where we're at now. And the, a group of players that have kind of had that same journey as the group of players back in 2006, where they've had they've had failure, um, they've had you know almost success for want of a better way of describing it, 
until they ultimately got 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 the uh, the holy grail they were trying to achieve. So, you know, that's that's another journey this team are on now, and we're trying to build on top of that. So, I suppose, you know, over eighteen years we've had success, lots of success, um, and lots of uh, near success in the last few years. So, I like to think now we're we're hitting that pinnacle with this squad. Great, yeah. I mean, you guys are in a good, pretty good position for this coming year with the restart. So, what are the expectations going into this shortened season? Yeah, well, like unfortunately, from a European Cup point of view, we didn't make the uh, the knockout stages, and um, we were probably well, we were the hardest group imaginable at the beginning of it. And it was, you know, we, we nearly navigated our way through that group. And you know, we, we unfortunately a draw at home to Racing Metro was probably the uh, the result that uh, you know didn't allow us progress into the, into the quarterfinals. So, but we're nicely placed as regards to Pro 14, which is our. Uh, Domestic league, um, you know, we're sitting second in our group, a couple of points behind Edinburgh, um, and you know we're playing Leinster on the twenty second of August, then Connacht the following Sunday. So we, we do hope to get um, you know a semi final or a home semi final spot within that. Albeit a home semi final, every game has been played in Aviva during that kind of bio bubble during um, during the COVID outbreak. So um, yeah, we, we you know we sense a bit of uh, a bit of success there. We can perform, and it's all about performing. You know. Every team is tackling COVID and the lockdown in, in their own certain ways, and you know we all think that how you're doing it is gonna is gonna work, but you don't really know. You don't really know until you uh, hit that pitch against uh, an opposition you're not playing every you know training against every week. Mm. So that's going to be the unknowns for this team and all teams. Yeah, definitely. Um, and what's your favorite level of rugby to watch? I, I've heard this question asked a few times, and you know, I suppose. I go watch my kid play under eights, and I help coach the under eights team. I, I also coach the university side in Limerick, the University of Limerick, Brooke, Bohemians at a all Ireland league level, um, and obviously I work with Munster at, at, at the top of the game. Um, so I kind of experience on a weekly basis every level of it. Um, so it's a hard question to answer. I, I just love watching watching rugby. I love watching professional rugby. Had even you know the ebbs and flows of games, and you know how certain things impact the game and impact results. I love the rawness of coaching under eights kids and seeing the excitement in their eyes when they, uh, you know, when they when they take the ball sometimes for the first time, and sometimes tackle for the first time, and you know, you can see the quality in some kids, their balance, and then the you know other kids that need a little bit of work, just you know, encouragement to play or encouragement to run and do whatever may it may be to make their day as good and as happy as everyone else's. And then from the university point of view, you know, you look at a bunch of kids. When I say kids, I mean 18, 19, 25-year-olds who are trying to get to that professional level um, are some guys who just want to enjoy the game and have a few beers on a Saturday evening after match, and that's fine too. So I suppose I'm pretty in, uh, entrenched uh, you know, with rugby every week at all different levels. So I, I wouldn't say at any level of three that is my favorite. I think I just love watching rugby. Yeah, that's a great answer. I, I think if my son was old enough to be playing, I would be probably most into watching him play. But uh, we're not quite at that point yet, so. Yeah, well, yeah, look, it's great watching kids play, and it, and it is, that's what gives you the buzz. I mean, I didn't start rugby until very late. Um, soccer was my background, so, you know, I I remember take, I remember taking rugby up for the first time, and like, it's like, you know, what the hell am I doing here? This is crazy. And uh, and then you get into it, then you get you know you get those hits and you make those runs, you beat, you make a break at that age, and, you know that's the excitement that kids kids you know from eight years well whatever age you know six years of age all the way up to 
you know, when I took it up, probably more in secondary school when I was about 12, 13, so. Great, yeah. And so uh, to get into kind of the nitty gritty of being a performance analyst, uh, what are the statistics that you're analyzing for the team? Yeah, look, there's so many statistics that you're analyzing um, and, and at different parts of the week, you're analyzing different types of statistics. So, um, you know, whether it's pre-game and you're trying to build a, an, an opposition scouting report um, from, from the opposition player point of view or the opposition team trends point of view, you know, statistics within that. If it's on match day, you're looking at certain metrics within your own game that, um, you know, equates to your your key performance indicators um, or as post-match looking at uh, re-evaluating or evaluating your own performance. Um, you know, we take in so many different re- uh, streams of data from, you know, Opta, from stat, you know, what stats perform now. So, um, you know, we take in that and we, we crunch our own metrics. Um, I think the key thing for me around statistics and what we do is it's it's how you can dilute those statistics into a key message for the players and coaches. Um, and we've we worked really hard over the last number of years to make sure that we, we, we concentrate on the most important statistics within the game, um, and not just the global game, but within our game. So what optimizes our performance? What, what makes Munster look at, at their best on their day? Um, and we've worked hard on kind of narrowing down all the different statistics we get in from our own performance and then looking at, you know, you hear a lot of people say, okay, once we're 5% off or geez, they're 10% better than last week. Well, I suppose we set ourselves the challenge of saying, okay, when people see that and people say that, what does that mean? What's that look like? Um, so, you know, out of five or 600 variables that we code ourselves, be it from an individual point of view or territorial or, you know, possession wise um, and outcome based, and um, we've streamlined that into a number of statistics that give us a, what we call a performance score. A performance, a performance score. Yeah, yeah. So, and I suppose a one standout score, whether it be fifty-six percent, fifty-eight percent performance score. Um, we know then, you know, last six or seven years since we've been running this metric, you know, if we if we get over fifty-six percent, we win pretty much one hundred percent of our games. If we dip to fifty-four percent, we 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 you know we're in and around the seventy-five percent win ratio. If we go below fifty-four percent, we don't win games. So that's one number that probably means nothing to anybody listening to this podcast. But for <laughs> us, but for us, that number comes from the metrics that we analyze the game in. Okay, and are there any specific factors that go into that, or is it? Oh sure, yeah. Like I said, it's it's all it's all it's it's all parts of the game. So it's all the it's all the running meters. It's all the um, territory gains, the kicking accuracy, the uh, kicking meters, the uh, set piece quality, the set piece. Um, you know, the transition from attack into defense and vice versa, defense into attack, and also fundamentally our outcome of your possessions. So let's say you have thirty-five possessions in a game. How effective are you in those thirty-five? Um, you know, not necessarily from a black and white point of view, but you know, a little bit seeing again what the opposition do. So, um, but we also code the opposition the exact same way as we code us. So, I suppose what that gives us when we pool all that together, we, we, we come up with an outcome number from the opposition and an outcome number from our, our, ourselves that all equates to that performance score we want to achieve. Um, 
again, it's not about playing by numbers, but what it does do, um, particularly post-game, it gives us a really quick look and a reference point of where our performance was, was excellent or, or where our performance was poor. Um, you know, Obviously, then, if we say we had a very poor performance, we can gauge that into a number, so we're 12% off our performance score. Then what we want to dig a little bit deeper, what is that 12%? So one week, it may be our tackle completion, our, our uh, defence to attack transition could be the biggest indicator in that performance. And, and the next week, it could be the opposite. So it guides the players, it guides the coaches, it guides, guides the analysts into being able to delve a little bit of deep, deeper into your own game and seeing what makes you tick. Cool. Um, just thinking about grading possessions, like what are some outcomes of possessions that you would normally be grading? Well, every possession has an outcome. Yeah. Um, you know, whether you score a try, whether you regain a penalty, whether you run into touch, whether you, um, you know, you turn over possession, etc. There's so many different ways to turn, you know, the ball or that possession ended. I think what's critical is you you have a consistent or a philosophical look at what's acceptable within a within a turnover. So, for example, you may be attacking from your own, um, you know, from your own 22 up to your halfway line. You may kick that ball, but you know, can you have a positive outcome within three phases? Um, in other words, can you apply pressure back on the opposition with that kick? Can you apply pressure by running it? Can you apply pressure, you know, by um, if you knock it on, for example? Can you can your defence now automatically have an impact on the outcome of the opposition? So, you know, that is a possession. It's then then you can grade that subjectively based on. On, on your learnings and experience and what's acceptable to your coaching staff. Cool. Yeah. Um, I think you kind of already answered this, but what software are you guys using? Uh, pretty much like everyone else is using. We're, we're using Huddle Sports Code. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I've been using that since the, since the onset. Um, and really, it's top class. It does, it does what we need. And, you know, we reach everybody within the organization, our, our whole uh, – Domestic games, coach, coach, um, education department, academy, senior, senior team, and players. We're we're all kitted out with a, a suite of huddle, um, huddle products um, that effectively give us um, a platform to reach out to everybody on a weekly and a daily basis. Cool. And uh, when you're at the matches, what are you typically focused on uh, during the match? Um, yeah, lots of, lots of people have different answers to this, and um, and there is no right answer because your task to do whatever your task to do by the head coach. Um, so if if, if 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 as a head performance analyst or an assistant analyst or, or whatever your title may be, your coach wants you to do a certain thing, you must do that certain thing because in the stand you're there to provide them with the uh, with, with the t- with the tools necessary to, uh, to get the job done. So. Um, you know, to answer your question, personally, my job is is uh, is a solution based job. Um, I'm there to provide solutions for the for the coaches, um, and that can come in many different forms. For example, you know, the coaches might need their head in the uh, head out looking at the pitch at the game, um, and they might just turn around to me and just say, "Look, George, have a look at those last five possessions from a from a defensive set point of view, and give us some feedback as quick as you can um, in the next stoppage on what you're seeing." Now. If I don't have alignment to the coaches um, in 
and, and alignment all week in all the meetings and what they're looking for and how we've analysed the opposition ourselves, you know, I won't be able to give that uh, feedback um, in, in, in a short space of time accurately. So I think a role of a performance analyst is getting really aligned to all your coaches and seeing how they see the game, seeing the space they see, the opportunities they see, and also the pitfalls in your own performance. Then when someone like a Stephen Larkin says to me, like, you know, look, what space he's seeing from an attacking point of view, well, let him concentrate on the game and, and, and move on. And I'll delve my head into the laptop, take a look at the last few possessions. Think, think and know what we talk about all week and then, and then process what we're seeing live. Because you may see a certain amount of things during the week when you analyze an opposition, but you know where the game is at now is people will throw out false uh, false pictures when it comes towards a big game or people will change their defensive strategy come playing a certain type of opposition so you need to be able to adapt again so i suppose that's what i do um, during the game is for all the coaches uh, i'm probably a solutions-based person within the within the coach's box and how big is your analyst team um on match day my I have myself and my uh, my uh, senior performance analyst with Monster, which is Paul O'Brien. Uh, we had two uh, two intern positions, and uh, then in the academy, we also have a full time um, academy analyst, um, and he's also accompanied with uh, two part, uh, well two interns or co op students from the university, and we do some work with him. So effectively, three full time guys and, and up to three to four uh, you know part time intern co op students. Wow. That could be a lot in the coaching box. No, you, well, you wouldn't have all those guys in the coaches box. Um, you would just have myself and Paul as the as the senior analyst in the coaches box, and uh, you know, three or four coaches, and then you have the other um, intern co-op students doing doing other jobs, maybe keeping an eye on equipment at the trucks, maybe doing a bit of coding or a bit of re extra recording that may be needed. Cool. Um, and then, what trends are you currently seeing in the game? Yeah, just, just, I suppose the game has been pretty consistent the last few years. Um, you know, certain teams have got a different different style and how they want to see the game, you know, holding on the ball for long periods. And, and some have had really good success, but I suppose to have really good success with that, you have to have a top-class player uh, or group of players who can play that same way. Um, and other, other teams have been consistent in how they, uh, how they play from a territorial point of view or a proactive kicking point of view so uh you know the question is kind of what trends are we seeing in the game um you know i, I think it's just the accuracy and the efficiency teams teams execute their plays with um, is, is where trends are at because i suppose with with the jobs that we do um, and every other team is doing likes as us defenses are tighter spaces uh spaces less frequent um so the trends are, you know, basically just um, that execution of skill set um, and, and being accurate with your play. Um, I don't think there's any particular trend in the game. You know, there, there's obviously things from kicking point of view and where teams kick from and, and how they kick and the variety of kick. That will always be part of the game. Um, but then again, other teams and certain teams are outlying and how they play is holding on to the ball and, and attacking for multi-phase. So... Um, I don't think there's any right way or wrong way to play the game. It's, it, it's again, it's about being as accurate as you can to, as a team to, to make that trend work for you. Great. 
and then what have you been doing during quarantine to help your team improve? Yeah, we've been doing a lot actually. Um, it's kind of been an interesting time where you don't get this time usually to sit back and reflect on not only your, you know, your job as a performance analyst, but you know, and how you do how you do your certain jobs. But you don't you don't get to sit back and reflect and learn a little more and you know go down different avenues with different things. So I spent a lot of time, you know, looking at different ways to learn and look at different ways to get messages across, particularly. Uh, to help and equip the coaching staff, uh, you know, particularly to um, we've we so many meetings in a week with players. We just wanted to see how, how and what they can retain because the modern player is, you know, the iPhone addict or the you know the iPad addict. And we wanted to see how we can get engage them a bit more. So we actually we actually um, spent a bit of time with a um, professional storyteller, um, Claire Mayer Murphy, who worked who worked in London with the. Uh, with the art society over there and, and, and a lot of what she does and she actually spent a bit of time working in NASA um, is, is working with people with great ideas um, and being able to project that to an audience so that the audience can retain the best parts of it. So if you think about, you know, growing up, you know, you always remember a great story from your grandfather, your great story from a teacher or something like that. And there was reason for that because it stood out to you or it was, it was punchy and there was some good messages in it. So, um, I suppose what we what we wanted to see was like how can we make our meetings less uh, monotonous, less less kind of monotone. You know, some people would speak with certain pitches and just bring a little bit of life to every presentation. So that was one thing we done. Um, we also spent a lot of time looking and talking to teams in in other in other sports and seeing how they're how they're coping with lockdown. Um, and, and that's been that's been pretty educational as well. And again. <laughs> We don't know what's going to be right until we really hit hit, hit the ground running against Leinster on the 22nd of August. But what we can say is we, we've left no stone unturned to try and make ourselves better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, great. So just to wrap up, uh, do you have any favorite coaching books? Um, it's a tricky one. Well, not that it's tricky. I've read so many books. I struggle to retain a lot of the books because I, I go through them too quickly. I'm in the same I, boat. <laughs> I pick certain good things out there and they're really fresh and exciting for a day or two. And then uh, I move on to something else and I forgot what the previous one was. But, uh, you know, I, I listened to Eddie Jones' um, autobiography, My Life in Rugby, recently on, uh, on Audible. And, uh, do you know what? I just really enjoyed it. it. It struck a lot to me based on where I've gone in the game. Um, I suppose Eddie Jones is much maligned by certain people, and he uh, he rubs people up the wrong way. But effectively, or essentially, he's been ruthless in, in getting a winning team. Um, and you know, that's I'm a competitive person. I like that side of him. Um, you know, it's people would say it's all about him at times, but it's actually not. If you delve into it, he's doing certain things to take pressure off players. He's doing certain things to to motivate his players and he's doing other things to, to I suppose to to um, distract the opposition so I just enjoyed it because it's it's, it's truthful it's raw it's uh, it's passionate and, and he's a lover of the game a bit like I am great yeah no it's on my bookshelf I've uh, I've read through it and like you said it's hard to retain a lot from it but 
Um, we'll plan to read it again at some point, or at least read the pages that I dog-eared. So, um, great. Uh, are you on? I'm not sure if you're on Twitter, but are there three coaches that you would recommend following? Yeah, no, I am on Twitter, but I suppose it's I don't even follow it for from a coaching point of view. I follow it for information. Um, it's amazing what information you can get on Twitter when people slip up. Um, you know, just I suppose data is is in every form. Information is data. So you know, from all social media aspects, you you pick up on a lot of um, trends of the game and how people are talking about games and how people are talking about your performance and what they see. So I see performance analysis and video analysis being being able to see everything, you know, and being able to pick up cues off the ball, pick up cues on social media. I'm not that you'd use that every day, but you may see a little little. Uh, I suppose, nugget of information that's important. So I follow a lot of people on Twitter without actually contributing a huge amount um, because you do get a lot of information from it. I suppose things like Instagram are much better for, for, for seeing how coaches interact with certain things. One of an ex, an ex coach we have here, Larry Fisher, is with the Brumbies at the moment. You know, he's been outstanding on Instagram, sharing his knowledge of the game and sharing some drills and exercises. Um, you know, Rassi Erasmus recently came out on Twitter and you know, having worked closely with Rassi, you know, we know how much of a motivator and how much of a winner he is. And, you know, he started, he started putting this, a lot of things out on Twitter around uh, winning the World Cup and some behind-the-scenes footage. And, you know, a lot of the things he'd done with, 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 the, with the Springboks is exactly what he'd done with us with Munster. And, you know, it resonates. Um, and you can see the kind of language that he used. And a lot of people are very excited on Twitter listening to that because it's new to them, I suppose, it wasn't new to me, but it's it's very exciting to see it again. Yeah, it's a he's a great follow for sure. All right, great. So, just for one final question, what is one cool or obscure fact about rugby that you think people should know? Uh, I've heard a few of your contributors answer this question, and I was thinking about it, and it's a very strange question, uh, obscure fact, but I suppose it, I'll give you one um, incident. Uh, within the game many years ago, uh, a player that will, re- will rename, uh, remain nameless it was Vian Dupree. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, uh, we, we played a game in France many, many years ago, and uh, I, I went through the game over and over again. And as you do on a Sunday, you, you kind of go over uh, individual statistics, and you've done all the coding, and you look at the numbers, and you kind of double check the big numbers, and, you know they certainly check the, the, the quality and um, you know of the tackles and the missed tackles and make sure you're accurate but, but I, I was stumped because um, Vian had, had zeros right across his whole uh, timeline <laughs> I've definitely was, seen those before I was going he no tackles he no carries he no missed tackles he no assist tackles he no passes uh, no kicks he hit a hell of a lot of rooks but I just couldn't get over it. I think he was the only player and the only time I've seen zeros all the way across the timeline. And I looked over and over again, and and, uh, and, and I still couldn't find it. So I rang him up and said, Fian, I literally can't find one incident outside of rooking in the game. And he says, yep, I didn't do anything. He <laughs> says, everywhere I went, I was, I was getting dizzy. The ball just kept on moving away from me. 
<laughs> we went back and looked at it together and we, we went an awful laugh watching it because you know after Rook came we tried to get in the position to carry and you could see his hands hitting his head, his head because he loved to carry and he loved to tackle but the ball just never went near him <laughs> I feel like we've all had those moments as a player where it, the ball just never seems to find you or you know, some people some people will, will run away from work but he certainly wasn't a guy you'd run away from yeah all right, great, George. Well, thank you so much for your time. I, I enjoyed it. Cool. My pleasure, Christopher. Happy talk. Great to talk to you. All right, cheers.